this morning. Uh, I heard him at annual conference speaking on the Great Commission, and I found it just to be so refreshing and uh, powerful and uh, what uh, we needed. Uh, I just wanted so badly for him to come and to speak to us as well. So I'm very thankful for our brother, for his life, for his leadership with the uh, Board of Missions. I know that he's doing a terrific job. And uh, brother, welcome. Thank you so much. Lord bless. Good morning. I'm very glad to finally be here. Pastor has been trying for some time to get me. And uh, there have always been conflicts, but today it worked out, and we are really grateful for that. In the song we sang this morning, Build Your Kingdom Here, one of the lines is, Unveil Why We're Made. And I'm hoping that through the word this morning, we'll get a clearer vision of why we are made and why we are here. A bit of background, I am Director of Board of Missions. That's a fairly recent development, a year and a half. Uh, three years ago, that never occurred to me that this is where I would end up, and I don't think I was Director of Board of Missions yet when I was here the last time with you. Um, I want to thank you for your support of this board ministry. Our mission is to provide pastoral care for our missionaries, to provide guidance, counseling, and encouragement when they're home on furlough, and though many missions agencies do that, uh, very often the mission agency is far away, and the missionaries, when they're on furlough, live here. So we are here, we're present, and we help them in that way. The other half of our ministry is to help the Bible Fellowship Church, as a denomination, invest its resources, its missionary resources, in the most efficient and effective way possible to help churches decide what sort of ministries they want to support, to encourage them, to give them guidance in selecting missionaries to send. So this is the work of the Board of Missions, and we thank you for your support of this board ministry. I also thank you for your support, your personal support for our family. I was really impressed when we left the field, uh, going on three years ago now. All of our supporters stayed with us except for other churches that belong to other denominations. But all of our individual supporters stayed with us and still support us to this day, which means that most of the work I do for the Board of Missions is sponsored by the same supporters that supported us when we were on the field. And the rest is made up by churches like you who have joined in this ministry. And we really thank you for your support and enabling us to do this work. I want to say also that there are two things that might be of interest to you, uh, to you, two ministries of the Board of Missions. The one is Missions Rally, which is coming up on uh, April 16. That should be real easy to remember. It's the day after tax day. So that's the way to celebrate. Uh, come. And I'm excited about our, our plan for this year. We want to bring missionaries to the rally who are actually meeting people, engaging conversations with them about the Lord Jesus Christ, and leading them to become disciples of Christ. My hope is that for you who come to rally, you will come home after having heard these missionaries saying, you know, I could do that too. That's my hope. So think of rally. It will be at uh, Calvary Bible Fellowship Church in Sinking Spring, again, April 16. Also, I was checking out the missionary prayer calendar, our map out in the hallway, 
and I see that you've got a good number of missionaries that you yourself support, and you've got all the missionaries represented on that map. You can find out more about them by subscribing to Friday Prayer. Friday Prayer is an email prayer sheet to which our missionaries from around the world contribute, and every week you can get updates. Some missionaries write more often than others, but eventually you will get to meet all the missionaries through the prayer requests that they uh, submit on Friday prayer. And you can get that by writing to us by sending us an email. Our email address is real easy. It's just office at bfcbom.org, Bible Fellowship Church Board of Missions.org, okay? Office at bfcbom.org, and ask to be put on the mailing list for Friday prayer. I also write for Friday prayer, and I attempt to give some guidance on how to pray for missionaries, uh, things that you might not know if you've never been a missionary yourself. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid, 1961 to 1976. I was on the field with my parents. I left for Bible school and went back to the field in 1978, where we served until 2013. So I have had 52 years experience, missions experience, first as a kid, then as a missionary, and together with my wife, we've had 35 years. So we know what missionaries face day to day on the field, and I hope I haven't forgotten. You can find out if you subscribe to Friday Prayer. I had the unusual privilege during those 52 years of seeing a church, not just a congregation, but a whole fellowship of churches, in fact, an entire evangelical community, be planted and grow through its first three generations. We personally served in that church, Joetta and I, for 35 years, and our ministry was to train leaders. We trained every type of leader for Sunday school, for VBS, for preaching, for evangelism, anything that needed leadership, we trained leaders for. And we were disappointed at times to discover that though we could train young people for ministry, we couldn't make the church use them. And in many churches, there are just too many vested interests, too many stakeholders, and there's not room sometimes for young leaders who are rising up and who have a desire to serve the Lord. There's not room for them to serve because somebody is already occupying the place. Somebody is already doing that ministry And I would get young people who would come to me. They would say, they won't let me preach. They won't let me preach. I'd say, of course not. Of course they won't let you preach. What are you, 24, 25, 26 years old? They don't think you know anything yet. But what can you do? Can you go visit people at home? Can you pray for people? Can you share your faith with others? Can you serve in the church in other ways? Will they let you sweep? Will they let you unlock the door? What will they let you do? Do those things, and you'll see. Sooner or later, you'll get to do what the Lord has called you to do. In 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, this is the advice of the Apostle Peter to young people. He says, in the same way, you who are young, submit to your elders. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. And that's God's advice to the young person who wants to serve.
I was concerned with planting churches that would multiply in Guadalupe. And what I saw was a set of churches that was sinking deeper and deeper into an institutional rut. What had started out as a movement was becoming a monument. And I can't really blame the old guys, the first believers. They had stepped out of darkness into the light, and they had been charged by the first missionaries to hold fast until the Lord comes. Beware of the wolves. Beware of the enemies. Beware of sliding back into the world. And they had driven in the stake, you know, and they were hanging on to it for dear life until the Lord came back. Well, we began to realize around 2000, the year 2000, that maybe the Lord wasn't coming back that quick, and we needed to think about um, moving ahead. And about three years ago, I saw this church who realized that they were going to have to pass the torch to a new generation. When time had done its work and the older generation began to disappear in the church, there was this new generation, guys that I'd worked with, guys that we'd taught, um, who were waiting in the wings and who'd already earned reputation throughout the church as faithful servants of Christ, even though they'd never perhaps stood on a platform behind a pulpit. They were known throughout the church for their faithful service and for their humble attitude, for their passion, for their skills, and God did exalt them. When I saw one of them elected as president of the Association of Churches in Guadalupe three years ago, I realized that my job was done, and that's when the Lord told us we could leave. And that's how we ended up back here. So that's just a little bit of background on, uh, on where I come from, where we come from, what we've done in the past, and what some of our concerns are about as we look at churches not only overseas but also here at home. And I'm here. I'm here to encourage you to look ahead. You who are assuring the ministry in this church will not always be here. And perhaps the Lord will not come back before it's time to pass that on to other people. So you need to be looking around who in the church is available. You young people, you need to realize that the Lord needs leaders for the future, and you need to to begin preparing for that. Now, what I want to share with you today is kind of, it's not expositional really, it's more theological, uh, more... Yeah, missiological, let's use the words. But I want us to think. In the reading that I've done about missions, I came across a term that describes what I've been thinking for some time, and that term is missio dei. Now, it's a Latin word, and I don't know any other Latin besides that, but missio is spelled just like mission without an end on the end. Missio Dei is just D-E-I. I realize that this is a term that liberation theologians, liberals, etc., have seized upon, like they have on many other useful terms. But let's not reject it for that reason, because it actually describes a very important and very biblical concept. Why do we need a new term to talk about missions? Why not simply talk about missions the way we always have? Well, I want to use a new term because for most people, the word missions is already chock full of connotations and other meanings. And these other meanings that we've used of the word missions lock us into old paradigms and may prevent us from looking at things in new ways and ways that are far more relevant to the world we actually live in. For instance, it's become very hard in countries 
where the North American Church has exerted a significant missionary effort, it's become very hard for people there to think of the word missionary in any terms other than a white North American English-speaking person. They do not see themselves as missionaries because missionary is what they've always called the people who have come to them. And that can be a problem. In underdeveloped countries, missions has come to mean schools and hospitals, community development, and foreign money. Missions to them means we receive and you send. In our own minds, mission, missions often connotes something that takes place far, far away. If I were to ask you this morning, where are your missionaries? Well, you'd answer, like I would, they're all around the world. They're far, far away. It involves us going to them. It's something that God has left up to us, and it's our burden. It's our burden to figure out how to get it done, how to go far, far away, either before the Lord comes back or so that he will come back. Missions for us is something that the church does. It's one of its many programs. And I was looking at a, I was visiting a church recently and saw a nice diagram of everything they do. They have their youth ministry, they have their visitation ministry, they have their uh, different kinds of ministries. And then one of the ministries they do is church, is missions. So it just becomes something, part of the church's program. And we've gone to work on this project with a will. We've, we're the ones with the means, we think. We're the ones with the know-how and the vision. We've turned missions into a science. We talk about missiology. We've created corporations that carry out missions, mission agencies. And these agencies are supposed to see that the job gets done in the most efficient way possible. We've entrusted the brunt of the task to a few heroes among us, missionaries. And that's the problem when we use the word missions. We think that it's the job of just a few of us, and the rest of us, our job is to support them. Ordinary Christians like us, we can get on board by praying, by writing to the missionaries, by giving to mission projects, by going on work teams maybe. Our main responsibility is to send a few of ourselves around the world and then to support them. So I've chosen to use a different word, missio dei, instead of missions. And I've done that because I would like us to set aside these cliches as we talk about God's mission in the world that he created. Missio dei is not a hard concept. The word missio, the Latin word, means to send with a purpose. Now, we have a good word for that around here in English. We don't use it too often. But missio simply means to go after something and bring it back. The word we use is fetch. Now, I remember when I was growing up, my grandpa worked in a butcher shop, and every evening about quarter to six, he got off work at six, my grandma would load my brother and I in the car, and we would go fetch grandpa. And we knew what that meant. That meant we were going to leave, we are going to drive a few miles down the road to the butcher shop where he worked, pick him up and bring him home, fetch. We were going with a purpose. We were going to bring something back, and that's exactly what the word missio means, to go with a purpose, to go after something and bring it back. The word dei tells us whose mission it is. Dei means God, God's mission. It's God's mission from beginning to end, and Missio Dei is nothing more 
than God's fetching. Missio is not the church's missio, and the church is only one agent of the missio. There are many agents in God's missio, and there are many agents at work in the world. Take, for example, the story of Jonah, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. He was sent to the city of Nineveh unwillingly, but along the way he discovered that he was not alone. We would say Jonah was a missionary, but on the way he met God's storm, he met God's fish, he met God's gourd vine, he met God's cutter worm, and he met God's scorching wind. And all of these in the book of Jonah were agents of God's missio. They were sent at a specific time with a specific purpose, and that was to bring Nineveh to repentance. And why I like that book is that God even brought his own prophet to repentance. In the end, even Jonah repents. And it's a great story, but it's a story of how God has many agents at work in the world. He can use anything. He can use all kinds of things, and every one of these agents is part of his missio. The church is also part of his missio. So the core concept of Missio Dei is that mission does not belong to the church. Rather, mission is an attribute of God. Most theology books will class mission under the heading of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. But the concept of Missio says that mission belongs to the doctrine of God. Like we have a holy God, like we have a righteous God, like we have an eternal God, we also have a sending God. It's one of his attributes. When we speak of misio, we're not speaking of what the church does. We're rather speaking of something that God does because of who he is. Think about it. Everywhere in Scripture, from the very first story in the Bible... We have God pursuing, catching, and bringing back. Think of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fleeing, God pursuing. And you could say even that the whole story of the Bible is man hiding and God seeking. And why does God seek? It's because he is the God who seeks. He's the God of mission. The attribution of mission to God is present even in Jesus' ministry. The Gospel of John brings this out. Some 40 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says he has come to do the will of his Father who sent him. And, you know, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around this because we know who Jesus was. But he clearly says many, many times in the Gospel of John, he did not come of his own initiative. He was merely sent by his father, if I can use the word merely. He was sent by his father to do his bidding. Jesus was an agent. He was not the initiator of the mission. He was sent by his father. He states that his reliance on the father's directives, he states his reliance on the father's directives, rather, even in the most insignificant details of his ministry. He repeatedly says in the Gospel of John things like, I did not speak of my own accord, but the father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. That's in John chapter 12, 49. Then after some three dozen statements that he has come 
to do his Father's will, and he goes in submission to the Father's guidance in every aspect of his ministry, Jesus makes the final point in John chapter 20, verse 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, I've told you over and over that the Father sent me, and I'm doing exactly what he told me to do. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. In fact, the fact of his coming wholly at the initiative and direction of his Father becomes the basis and model of his sending of the apostles. Even though he is the Son, in his incarnation, he's only an agent of the mission which belongs to his Father. It seems to follow from that that every true believer, every true disciple's mission must find its origin and shape and direction in the missio of God the Father and in his designs and projects as exemplified in Jesus. The vision and strategy for missions are God's. They're not ours. God decides who, where, when, and how his message is to be born. Now, what difference does this make? Why is this important? Here are a couple of implications. The church is the servant of the missio, and the church, the missio is not the initiative of the church. In other words, mission is not something that some church made up somewhere. Missio is something that God has given to us. We are the servants of the missio. We follow God in the mission. The whole church follows God in the mission not just a part of the church. And you look at any church that has a missions program, and you'll notice that what we do is we send a few as missionaries. But Misio teaches us that mission is not the responsibility of the few. Misio is the responsibility of the whole church. We've made a distinction between church and mission. And I often felt this as a missionary, that as a missionary I was regarded as some sort of special Christian, some kind of Christian that was above and beyond all others. And I appreciate, I appreciate the care, the help, the honor. I appreciated that. But the doctrine of Misio, or the idea of Misio, says that it's not just a few who are missionaries, it's all of us who have been sent. The whole church has been sent. Even the name that is given to the church in the Bible speaks of missio, that we are sent. Now, we call this a church. You may have heard, you may know that the Greek word for that is ekklesia, or we translate the word ekklesia by church. But that word ekklesia speaks of mission. Let's take a look at the word ekklesia. We've all heard that church means ekklesia. Actually, it doesn't. Ecclesia is a term specifically chosen by the Holy Spirit from among many possibilities. Now, if you were to look in a dictionary, a Greek dictionary like Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, for instance, you would find out that in New Testament times there were a half dozen Greek terms that existed to describe spiritual religious organizations. They had lots of names for groups like this. Um, spiritual religious organizations that were all focused on personal and spiritual development. But the Holy Spirit didn't use any of those words, words that were used to describe religious societies. The most obvious word that the Holy Spirit could have used to describe us would have been synagogue. And the reason for that is that the Jewish people, who were also God's people, who were people of the book, already used that word. Everyone who knew the Bible knew what the word synagogue meant. It means to gather together. But the Holy Spirit didn't use that word either. 
synagogue. The Romans had a term called cultus privatus, which means exactly what it almost sounds like. It's a society that promotes personal spiritual growth. It's a private sort of thing. Um, It's like when you're trying to get in shape and you do aerobics in the basement of your house. That's kind of what cultus privatus was. It's something you do at home to grow spiritually, something you do in secret. And Kittle's Dictionary said that if the Holy Spirit had chosen that word, private worship, there would never have been a conflict between Christians and the empire because Christianity would have been locked away in secret and private and it would have never come into conflict with the powers and authorities. Now, we're in pressure, under pressure in our own country to turn Christianity into a cultus privatus. You hear of freedom of religion, and what our government means by that now is you are free to gather in a place like this and pray. You are free to gather in a place like this and speak of God, share your faith. You are free to do anything you want as long as you are in this building. But don't go out in public and don't do it. Don't try to pray in some places at a football game, for instance. I don't know if they do that here. Don't try to pray in schools. Don't speak of God in public. Do it in private. Do it in secret. And we are under pressure to turn the gospel into that kind of thing. Um, You can do whatever you want within the four walls of your church, but keep it out of the public square. And that was not the term chosen by the Holy Spirit to describe the church. That was not his intention of what we would become. The chosen term of the Holy Spirit is this word ecclesia. Now, you may have heard that this word means to be called out. That's what I was taught in Bible school. And the theological meaning of the word ecclesia means called out of the world to follow Christ. That's what I was taught. The thing that's interesting, though, is that this word was used long before Jesus started using it, long before the apostles started using it, and the historical meaning of this word, before it came to mean a gathering of Christians the way we use it today, was people called out into the street to discuss things that were important to them. We have an example of this in Acts chapter 19. An example of this kind of use of the word. People called out into the street to discuss things that are important to them. The word ecclesia was not originally a religious term. It was a political term. And it was the term used to describe a gathering of the citizens of a Greek city. In Acts chapter 19, verse 28, you probably know this story. It's called a riot at Ephesus. That's what most Bibles have for the heading there. And This riot at Ephesus happened because as Paul and his team were preaching the gospel, people began to come to Christ and it cut into the business of the people that made and sold idols. They weren't making and selling idols as much. Business was bad, and they got upset about it, and they started a riot. They started a a rumor, and we read in verse 28 of Acts chapter 19, When they heard this, that is to say, when the people heard what was going on, they were enraged and were crying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis was this idol that they were making uh, souvenirs for. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. That's the beginning of that story. 
when you get down to the end, they go to the riot and or they go to the to the stadium, and we read in verse uh, thirty-nine. Excuse me, thirty-four. That when these men were presented before the crowd, there was an uproar, and it says, for about two hours, the whole crowd cried out with one voice, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So this was a very noisy, tumultuous circumstance. People called out into the street to discuss something that was of interest to them. When we get down to verse 39, or 40 rather, we have the rulers of the city addressing the crowd, and they say, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said this, these things, they dismissed the assembly. And that word assembly there is our word ecclesia. And this is a way that that word was used. It was used to describe a gathering of citizens who were called out into the street to discuss things that were important to them. And sometimes these discussions got pretty lively. Everyone in the city knew what was going on. This was something that was public knowledge. It was not something that was hid away in a building somewhere. This was something that happened in the streets that everybody knew about. And that's the word, the word that's used here for assembly, is the word that the Holy Spirit chose to use for church, ecclesia. Thayer's definition of ecclesia uses these words, spontaneity, informality, tumult, and throng. Now, do those remind you of what you associate with what we call church? On the contrary, most churches will remind you of things like turn off your cell phone so we can worship without interruption. Uh, we are to be quiet here. We teach our children to be quiet, pay attention in church. That is not the original meaning of the church, of the word ecclesia. The original meaning was people meeting together in the street to discuss things that were important to them. There was nothing in the term ecclesia at the time the apostles and Jesus first started using it to suggest an institution with so many of the trappings of church culture that we know today and defend. Ecclesia was the word that was used, a throng, a multitude of people talking about things that were important to them. Ecclesia remained the accepted descriptor of the disciples, of Jesus until Constantine. They were called the Ecclesia until the Emperor Constantine came along. And when Constantine came along, something changed. Christianity was legalized and Christians were allowed to have their own buildings. In fact, they were required to have their own buildings. They were no longer allowed to meet in public, but they had to have special buildings set aside where they could go and have their services decently and in order. These dedicated places of church of, of uh, worship were called kyriakos, meaning belonging to the Lord. See, Constantine legalized Christian, Christianity, but he also regulated it. You can be Christians, you can have your ministers, but I have to know who they are. You can have your places of worship, but I have to know where they are. And it's very much like what we hear the official church in China today, the registered church. And these houses of worship were called kyriakos, meaning that which belongs to the Lord, the Lord's house, and it's from that word that we get our English word, church. You can almost hear it, kyriakos becomes church. The earliest English versions of the Bible translated the word ecclesia by assembly or congregation. So if you go back before the King James 
version to the older versions, you'll see assembly, congregation, which is how they translated ecclesia. But when King James translated, had the Bible translated into English, the official translation, he was concerned about, about a very powerful organization called the Church of England that had its church buildings, that had its hierarchy, that had its leadership, that were very powerful in England, and he ordered his translators to use the word church rather than either ecclesia, assembly, or congregation. He ordered them to use church, the word church, out of deference to the ecclesiology of the Anglican church. So King James, in his translation, recognized what we call today the established church. What's wrong with that? Well, when we use the word church, what do we mean by that? We generally see a gathering of people at designated times away from their daily lives and into a specifically appointed locale for worship and instruction, just like what we're doing this morning. This is church to us. When church is over, what do we do? <laughs> we eat. That's good. We go home. When church is over, we go home and we resume our day-to-day -day activities. Everything that's important to us as a church, we do behind closed doors. And if somebody outside wants to find out what the church does, they have to come through our doors into our territory and see what we do inside here. Does that sound like ecclesia? Ecclesia was a word for people in the street, people outside, people talking to other people about what was important to them. Church is about withdrawing from the public, coming into a private place, and doing among ourselves things that are good, worship, teaching, all these things are good, but we have lost connection in many ways with the people that aren't in our churches. There certainly is a role and a place for an orderly gathering. In fact, the word synagogue, which means an orderly gathering, gathering together, is used in James chapter 2, and it describes a structured Christian assembly, the kind of thing we do. So there is a time and a place for what we're doing here this morning. There is a time and a place. But in the passage that was read this morning, we find that one of the important things that we should be, or we find one of the important things that we should be doing when we are together. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll just look at that again, describes a structured assembly. It anticipates a structured assembly, but it very clearly specifies the purpose of this assembly. Why do we get together? Why do we gather? In verse 11, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we read this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers, those are the recognized leaders of the church, he gave them for what purpose? To equip the saints. Who are these saints that are being equipped? All of us, right? So he gave these leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there is a place for structured and ordered assembly, but what is the purpose? 
Why do we come together according to Paul in Ephesians 4? It's to be equipped for the work of the ministry. We come here to be equipped for what we do out there. This word equipping is very interesting. And I only say the the Greek words that if you want to make the link, look it up. You can look it up later. The Greek word is katartizo. And it's the same word that's used in Mark chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me. Mark chapter 1, verse 19. It's used in a very different context from what happens here at church. In Mark chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus is encountering his first disciples. We read in verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So what were James and John doing when Jesus met them? They were mending their nets. You see that? And that word mending is the same as Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says equipping the saints. The work of the leaders of our church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And that same word is the word that is used here to describe what James and John are doing. They are mending their nets, equipping their nets, if you will. Or if you want to put it around the other way, say the leaders of the church, their job is to mend us for the work of the ministry. It's the same word, same meaning. Now, what do you do with a fishnet once you've mended it? Hang it on a wall? Put seashells on it? That's what some people do with it. No, you mend it so you can go fishing. And you see what the picture is here? The whole church is to be involved in seeking that which is lost. We are all part of God's missio. Not just a few of us who are missionaries that we send far away, but every one of us is part of this great fishnet that God has placed in the world. And we have apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. We have those people in the church, evangelists, to do what? To prepare us for the work of the ministry, to prepare us to do the job that God intends us to do. So missio is God-seeking, and the church is one of the agents of his seeking. Now, I want to make one final stop, very quick final stop, the Great Commission. Matthew's version of the Great Commission is this, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, excuse pardon me? Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if you take that sentence apart, I don't know how many of you like grammar, but grammatically there are four verbals in there. 
and three of them are participles. And if it was translated as participles, it would be, as you are going, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Now, what is the real imperative in there? We have made the imperative, when we speak of missions, we've made the imperative go, as though go is the main thing. Actually, the main thing is to make disciples. In other words, talk to other people about Jesus and invite them to join us in following him. That's what making disciples is about. Make disciples. And when are we supposed to do it? We're supposed to do it as we are going. And where are we supposed to do it? We're supposed to do it wherever we're going. See, we've turned missions into going far away. And we say that's just for a few of us. There's no way all of us could go, so we will send a few. But Missio Dei teaches us that as each one of us is going about our work every day, we are to be sharing what we know of who Jesus is and inviting people to follow him, making disciples. The focus of the Great Commission in Matthew is that we need to recognize that whenever and wherever we go, we are on a mission, and it's God's mission. Make disciples of all nations, that word all nations, that tends to make us think that it has to happen far away. Because nations to us today is a political division. So when we speak of nations, you know, we speak of Syria, we speak of Lebanon, we speak of France, we speak of uh, Philippines. That's not what it meant when it was used in this context. Here it's simply, it's an anthropological term. It means people of every language group, people of every race, people of every economic social level. It's people of every kind. And the intention of the Great Great Commission is that the gospel be shared by people of every kind with people of every kind. We are all engaged in it if we belong to Jesus. We are agents of God's mission. The intent of the commission is that the gospel be preached by everyone who has come to know Christ. Now, Luke has a version in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, But you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we tend to think that Jerusalem is home. So you start at home, but then you have to go out. If you think about it, If you think about it, was Jerusalem home to the disciples? Was that their home? No. They were, for the most part, Galileans. Jerusalem is where they were. It wasn't their home. And what we need to understand is wherever we are is where we need to begin. Wherever we are. I know people who say, you know, if I could just go someplace, I could be a missionary. The example we have in the New Testament is that we are to begin where we are. Jerusalem was not their home. It was where they were at the time. And their mission was not to establish new organizations. Their mission was to share with people like them and people different from them who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Jesus said in John, and this is John's version of the Great Commission, As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. 
Jesus' model for going is our model for going. And C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, The Four Loves, Our going must be an imitation of God incarnate. Our model is the Jesus not only of Calvary, but the Jesus of the workshop, the roads, the crowds, the clamorous demands and the surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy, the interruptions, for this so strangely unlike anything we can attribute to the divine life in itself is apparently not only like, but is the divine life operating under human conditions. And what C.S. Lewis is pointing out to us is that we are to follow Jesus and all the places that we go every day, whether it be to work, to school, in marketplace, wherever we go, Jesus has been in places just like that. And what he did in those places is what we should be doing in those places. As the Father sent me, so I am send, sending you. So I will conclude with that. What I hope you remember is that it's not just a few of us that are sent. It's all of us that are sent. And the church exists to equip us for that ministry. I'm very happy to hear that John Elias and his wife will be coming to help you prepare for that ministry. And what they teach you about witnessing to Muslims is the same thing that you need to know to witness to anybody, to people you know. You can say, I don't know any Muslims. That doesn't matter. You can still learn from what they have to say because what you would do for a Muslim, you would do for your own neighbor. So I want to leave with you with that. As Jesus was sent... So we are sent. Pastor. Thank you very much, Dwayne. We certainly appreciate that. Let's stand for prayer. And uh, Ruth will sing majesty at the end. Okay. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning. And we certainly are reminded that uh, we are not to simply take this all in with the sense of being personally uh, invigorated or challenged, but uh, Lord, that uh, we would take this outside these walls and into the streets and share with others the things that uh, we know and have learned and benefited in our relationship to you. Help us to show uh, the Lord Jesus Christ to others. Bless us as we go. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.